Now is this on? Yes, it is. Well, it is wonderful to be with you here today. Um, my wife Christy and Caleb and I sometimes make it out here, seems like about every year and a half or so. And so I see some familiar faces. I know some of you, most of you, as I look around, probably have no idea who I am. Um, but we were here, actually, uh, for my brother's wedding. Probably more of you know my brother, Stephen. I think he's probably around here a little bit more. Uh, at the age of 43, the Lord provided for him a wonderful woman. He was married last night, and it was great to celebrate that with him. And so since we were out here, <clears throat> and I think my dad needed a break, uh, he asked me if I would uh, preach today, and I'm, I'm happy uh, to, to do so. Um, Christy and my two kids, Caleb and Phoebe, would have been here today, but last night after the uh, wedding reception, my son was sitting in my dad's truck and threw up everywhere in it. So if you know how much he enjoys his truck, then you know what a, a wonderful thing that was. <clears throat> I don't know where Mary Barks is. I sort of blame her because she was sitting by Caleb while he was concocting a lot of Henry Widehards and lemonade and eating a lot of junk, so I, I, kind, of, I, think, I kind of think that's her fault. But anyway, uh, it's, it's, it is wonderful uh, to be with you here today. As my dad said, it is Pentecost Sunday, and this time of year we mark our calendars for Memorial Day, which is wonderful, and we should as Americans continue to celebrate the fact that many have given their lives for this country. But what's often unremarked by many Christians is the fact that we have a, a Christian calendar, we have a Christian year, and today, Pentecost Sunday, is one of the holier days we have. And I'm, I'm reminded, though, about, uh, about 20 years ago or so, an observation that one of my seminary professors made. We, and, and rightly so, we make a really big deal, a big splash, around Christmas time when we decorate trees and we have Christmas pageants and we adjust our calendar, we take special trips, we take time off work, uh, to celebrate the incarnation, which is the coming of the second person of the Trinity into the world. We should pause and be blown away by the fact that God would come to us in flesh, make himself known to us, and to change the kind of relationship he wanted to have with us through that appearing. But when it comes to the third person of the Trinity, coming to the world and making himself known to us, filling our hearts, it often goes off unremarked. And maybe one of the reasons for that is because we just oftentimes fail to understand who the Holy Spirit is and what the Holy Spirit does. And so this morning, what I want to help us encourage, to think about, encourage you to think about is why Pentecost matters. And I want to do that by going through the Gospel of John. We'll be turning to John chapter 14. We'll be reading verses 8 through 17. So if you have your Bibles, you can, you can turn there. Or if, unfortunately, you have your phone, you can use your phone. I'm guessing this is more low-tech, right, considering who your pastor is, but unless you rebel against what he's about. We'll be looking at John chapter 14, 8 through 17, one of the passages for Pentecost Sunday. Um, <clears throat> but the three questions I want us to consider are very simple. One, who is the Holy Spirit? Number two, why was the Holy Spirit sent? And then number three, what difference does the Holy Spirit make in my life? Now, before we read the passage, which is obviously in the New Testament, that has something to do with the Holy Spirit, Jesus will be speaking here, we really can't understand what Pentecost is all about 
if we only read the New Testament. So most of us are probably familiar with the fact that the day of Pentecost was the day that the church was born. The Holy Spirit came upon the disciples in the upper room after Jesus had gone away, 50 days after the resurrection. The word Pentecost is Greek for 50. And the Holy Spirit came and filled the disciples. He enabled them to speak in other languages that people could understand. Where before they were timid, they were now filled with boldness and courage. The Holy Spirit did something powerful and transformative in their lives, and they went about by the Spirit's power to set the world on fire. The church was born. But when we back up to the Old Testament, which usually helps clarify some things in the New Testament and vice versa, we recognize that Pentecost doesn't really have its beginning in the New Testament. So if you've read your Old Testament before, you'll probably be familiar with the fact that for the Israelites, one of the highest and holiest days on their calendar was Passover. And for generations, Israelites, Jews, even today, celebrate Passover. And you probably remember the story of Passover during the 10th plague that God was afflicting upon the Egyptians as the Israelites were in bondage. The 10th plague was the death of the firstborn son. And God told the Israelites... This is what I'm about to do. But for you, gather each family, take a lamb. I want you to kill. I want you to sacrifice that lamb. Take some of the blood, smear it upon the doorposts outside of your home so that when the angel of the Lord comes through to strike the firstborn of each family, he will see the blood of the lamb and pass over your home. You will be spared from death because of the blood of that lamb. And so what it did was it marked the deliverance, not just from death, but ultimately their freedom out of Egypt, out of slavery. Because after that plague, of course, Pharaoh let them go. And so Passover became a time to celebrate the salvation and deliverance of God. And generation after generation, this is what the Jews have celebrated. Now, 50 days after Passover, the Jews celebrated another festival called the Feast of Weeks. Now, this is maybe a little less familiar to us, unless you really liked reading Leviticus and read about all those festivals. But the Feast of Weeks was a time to celebrate harvest. And not just harvest, but the abundance of God's provision. So Israelite men would take the first fruits of their fields, wheat or sheaves or something, go to the temple, wave it before the Lord as an offering to him. The priests would eat, and the people would celebrate, and the whole thing would culminate at the end with a huge meal for everyone, not just the priests and not just for the men of Israel, but for the entire community, including the poor and including the strangers, the sojourners, the non-Israelites who would come into the fold. And so it was a way to celebrate 50 days after Passover the abundant provision of God's gift. I hope you can see the beautiful parallel there between the Passover celebration and the Feast of Weeks in the Old Testament and then fast forward ahead to the New Testament where you have the blood of the Lamb slain for us, delivering us from death, freeing us from our bondage, the event of the cross and the empty tomb. And then 50 days after that event, we now celebrate a different kind of gift from God, a different kind of abundance. Not so much of crops, although it's nice to have plenty, but of God's own spirit given to us, to dwell in us, to change us, and to intimately unite us with God. So with that in mind, let's read 
John chapter 8, I'm sorry, John chapter 14, verses 8 through 17. One of, the, one of the first of several speeches that Jesus is going to give about the Holy Spirit. And I don't want to ramble on too much. However, um, if you ever want to know more about the Holy Spirit, the best place to go actually is not a book. It's to John 14, 15, and 16. Jesus teaches us a whole lot about the Holy Spirit. It's what we call pneumatology. So I'm going to read part of the first speech that Jesus gives about the Spirit. Verse 8, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father." Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I'll do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you." Let's pause and pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable to you, and may your word come through in this passage. Amen. So who is the Holy Spirit? You might be surprised that a lot of Christians have a hard time giving a good, clear definition as to who the Holy Spirit is. Maybe one of the reasons for that is because just the name Holy Spirit Sounds so mysterious and ethereal and ungraspable for us. I mean, we can, we can relate to like God the Father, in part because we know something about what a father is. We can relate to God the Son, Jesus Christ. After all, he took on our nature. He, he, he became one of us. We can sort of get Jesus. But when it comes to the Holy Spirit, sometimes it's harder for us to even grasp, what is it that we're even talking about? So when we ask the question, who is the Holy Spirit, although it may be puzzling to a lot of Christians even, the bottom line answer is that the Holy Spirit is a divine person of the Holy Trinity. Emphasis on divine and personal. Now, when we say that the Holy Spirit is divine, what we're saying is that He is just as much God as the Father is God and as the Son is God. He is no less divine and no less powerful and no less eternal than God is. So how do we come to that conclusion? Well, there's a lot of scripture that helps us see this. But here in this passage, we can understand how the Holy Spirit is himself fully God and fully divine by grounding who he is in the father-son relationship that Jesus said so much about in his response to Philip. Jesus, did you notice the, the language that Jesus uses when he's talking about his own relationship to the Father? When Philip says, well, just show us the Father. That'll be great for us. Jesus says, don't you know that I am in the Father and the Father is 
in me, and if you were to see me, you see the Father? Now, don't make the mistake that some people have, and that is to suggest that Jesus is the Father, and the Father is Jesus. There's a distinction between God the Father and God the Son, Jesus Christ. They are not the same person. We'll use that language. Um, there's actually a heresy for those who make that conflation. It's called modalistic monarchianism. You may have never heard that before, but trust me, you don't want to be a modalistic monarchianist. So the Father and the Son are not the same person, but Jesus speaks this way because there's a union between the Father and the Son that is absolutely inseparable, even though the two are distinguishable. It means that whatever... Sometimes we use the word essence. I like to use the word isness. That's not actually a word. But your isness is the very essence, the very nature, the very substance of what you are. To, to take Jesus at his word is to help us understand that whatever the isness of the Father is, the Son has that exact same isness. Whatever the will of the Father is, the Son has that exact same will. The Father and Son don't have two separate wills, they have one. Whatever the power of the Father is, the Son has that power. The Father is eternal. He has no beginning or end. He is outside of time. The Son is eternal. The Son has no beginning or end. He is outside of time. The glory of the Father is the glory of the Son. So what Jesus is saying here is that my words and my works are not from human origin alone, although he was fully human. They are ultimately from God because Jesus himself is God in the sense that he shares the exact same divine isness or nature as the Father does. There's a, there's a distinction between the Father and the Son. The Father isn't the Son, and the Son isn't the Father, yet both the Father and the Son are God, fully divine. To see Jesus then, to hear Jesus, to observe Jesus, is to observe the very works and witness and power of God. So when it comes to the Holy Spirit, when Jesus talks about, I'm going to ask the Father, he will send you another helper, the Holy Spirit shares in that union between the Father and the Son. He is no less divine than the Father and the Son. And we know that for several reasons. One, when we see what the Holy Spirit does, the Holy Spirit does the exact works that only God is capable of doing. When we talk about conviction for sin, when we talk about the power to turn and regenerate a heart, when we talk about the power to sanctify through and through, Paul says that's the work of the Holy Spirit. Well, no one but God can do that. And if that work is attributed to the Spirit, we recognize, well, the Holy Spirit is fully God. He's divine. He even shares some of the same titles as the Father and the Son do. Paul calls him Lord. In 2 Corinthians 3, 17 and 18, who else is called Lord in the Bible? Father and the Son. Jesus here talks about the Spirit and calls him the Spirit of truth. Who else is called the truth in the Bible? Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. We're told, let God be true and everyone else a liar. The Holy Spirit even shares the, some, of the, some of the same divine titles. He shares the works, he shares the titles, he shares the same nature. 
the same quality. The love of God is the love of the Spirit. The presence of God is the presence of the Spirit. The power of God is the power of the Spirit. Are you getting the point? I think so. I'll keep moving on here. But I want us to see this, because in my experience in churches and with a lot of students, even those who come from good churches, they're oftentimes unaware that the Holy Spirit is fully divine and fully God just as much as the Father and Son are. They think of the Holy Spirit as somehow a lesser kind of being, maybe an emotion or something, or a, a powerful force field. Kind of, I don't know how many Star Wars fans are here. I like Star Wars. Not the, yeah, good. Although not Phantom Menace, that's terrible, but horrible, yeah. Amen to that. If I don't get any other amens, you should at least say amen to that. Um, what was I saying? I got off on the wrong track. Oh, sometimes, sometimes we think that the Holy Spirit is kind of like the force in Star Wars with just a little bit of like godness sprinkled in, okay? He's not that. He is fully divine, but the other emphasis here is that he's fully personal. It's common to hear a lot of Christians, and maybe some of you have done this, I'm not indicting anyone here, no judgment, but it's common for a lot of Christians to refer to the Holy Spirit as it. Okay? Do you refer to the people you're sitting next to as it? Not if you don't like them very much, right? You, <laughs> I saw that. We refer to inanimate objects as it. The podium, it is standing right here. This flower arrangement that I hauled in last night from the wedding when I was very tired, it is sitting right here. It, that chair, right? We don't refer to persons as its. The Holy Spirit is a person, just as much as the Father and Son are persons. Again, it's hard for us to grasp sometimes because we can grasp that the Father is a person. We can grasp, of course, Jesus is a person. The Holy Spirit sounds more like a ghost, some sort of, a, again, an ethereal force. But notice if you read your scriptures that all of the things that the Holy Spirit does are personal in nature. He speaks to people. He can be grieved. You can even lie to him. I wouldn't recommend that if you read Acts chapter 5. Okay? He empowers. He reminds. He convicts. He teaches. He equips. The Holy Spirit does all of the personal work that is consistent with a personal God. So hear me now. We shouldn't think of the Holy Spirit, even if we don't completely get all of our understanding of the doctrine of the Trinity right. And I, I don't, and I don't think any of us do. God is mysterious. He's above us. He's beyond us. But what he has revealed to us is that his spirit isn't just some emotion, isn't just some force or power. His spirit is personal, and his spirit is fully and completely divine. Now, maybe one of the last things we can say here is that when asked about who the Holy Spirit is, and we say he's a divine person of the Godhead, of the Holy Trinity, there's probably no better short answer than the Nicene Creed, the ancient creed going back to the fourth century that confesses, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who goes out or proceeds from the Father, who with the Father and the Son together is worshiped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. The Holy Spirit is a divine person. Now, that leads us to our second question. Why was the Holy Spirit sent? Why did we come to a point in biblical history where Jesus was going to physically leave and give the disciples and the world the Holy Spirit? 
he even seems to suggest, and if I, were, if I were one of the disciples, I would have been confused by this. But Jesus seemed to say in a couple of places that it was almost advantageous that he left so that the Holy Spirit would come. Jesus said, unless I leave, the Holy Spirit won't come. And if I would have been one of Jesus' disciples, he's my rabbi and Lord, I, I would have been like, how is it better that you leave? But Jesus has a way of making things both cryptic and clear. One of the things that Jesus says about the Holy Spirit is that he is our comforter. One of the reasons that he was sent was because God knew and Jesus knew that the disciples and us all need a lot of help. We need a lot of help in a lot of different ways. Now, maybe your version, as I was reading along here in verse 17, I'm sorry, verse 16, when Jesus calls this other one another helper, some versions may say helper, some may say comforter, some may say guide. The word that in the Greek is actually paraclete. Maybe you've heard that term before. Paraclete can mean helper. It can mean comforter. It can mean guide. More specifically, though, the word paraclete has the idea of one who comes alongside another, befriends that other, takes an interest in that other, and when necessary, speaks on that other's behalf. It's an advocate is what it is. Um, a paraclete is one who speaks more powerfully than you can for you. It's actually the same exact word used of Jesus in 1 John 2, 1. Have you read that before? If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. It's the same word. It's paraclete. Jesus and the Spirit are both called paraclete in the Scriptures. Why that's important is this. Right now, if Jesus Christ is your paraclete and your advocate, we recognize that he is speaking for us. He's speaking to the Father on our behalf at the right hand of God in heaven. Paul tells us that the Spirit is our advocate in the sense that he speaks in and through us. We don't always know how to pray. We don't even know what to say to God sometimes. It's the Holy Spirit who helps us in our weaknesses and who helps us know how to pray, helps us know what to say in certain situations, gives us a certain power and capability to respond in a godly way to circumstances on the ground that you and I don't have on our own. God knew we needed help, and God provided the Spirit to give us that help. Think of the, think, think of the disciples. Think of how scared they were when Jesus left. Think of how timid they were. Think of how you know, they, were, they were locking themselves away. They didn't know what to do. When the Holy Spirit came in Acts chapter 2, Notice the remarkable and profound, amazing difference. All of the sudden, they're able to go out and speak boldly to a crowd that just before they were afraid of, and they maintain that boldness. They didn't, they didn't just sort of manufacture that on their own. They didn't sit in that upper room, and, upper room and decide, hey, guys, let's man up and do this. They couldn't unless the helper, the paraclete came, empowered them, and spoke through them the very things that God wanted them to say. We need the same thing. Now, I don't know what jobs you all do. I don't know where you are throughout the week. But the Holy Spirit wants to do his work in and through you. He wants to speak through you, too. We have the exact same Holy Spirit that the disciples did. The same Holy Spirit that fell on the disciples and filled them, transformed them, and empowered them is the exact same Spirit that you and I have today. Now, God wants to help us, but 
Maybe the more important thing, to the answer to the question, why was the Holy Spirit sent, is this. God doesn't just want to be with us and around us. He wants to be in us. There isn't any more intimate of a relationship than that. Did you notice in verse 17, the last verse that I read, Jesus said, you know him, meaning the Spirit, for he dwells with you and will be in you. There's a big difference between those two little prepositional words, with and in. All prepositions signify some kind of relationship. The way that the Holy Spirit had been kind of around throughout the Old Testament up to the point where Jesus was speaking here was more of a witness. Now, if you've read the Old Testament before, you recognize that the Holy Spirit's there, but it seems like the Holy Spirit is only given to certain individuals at certain times for certain situations. It's not that the Holy Spirit was wholly absent from people's lives, but when we read about the infilling of the Spirit, it's only on a particular individual, on a Moses or an Elijah or a prophet. And that's kind of the way it was. The Spirit was around, but not really in, except for a few individuals. Until we get to Joel, the prophet Joel, chapter 2, verse 28. God makes a promise to the Israelites, speaking through Joel, that there's going to be something different about the way that he interacts with people through his spirit. He says, in that day, there's coming a day, when I will pour out my spirit on, anyone know? All flesh. I'm not just going to give my spirit to a few individuals here for a certain you know, job. I'm going to pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Your maidservants and your women servants are going to prophesy. God, is, God said, I'm going to pour out my spirit upon all. All will have access to the spirit. The spirit will no longer be with you, but will be in you. Jesus seems to indicate that the disciples had some awareness of the Spirit. I mean, he even says here, you know him, for he dwells with you. They had proximity to the Spirit, but what Jesus promises is intimacy with the Spirit. God doesn't just want to be around us. He wants to be in us. That's an amazing thought. And you know what? I, I've, I've been raised in church. And some of these kinds of teachings and phrases I've grown up with, and I've realized sometimes, though, how dangerous it is for let truths like this that most of us know already to somehow become common and uninteresting. You know what I mean? The fact that God, the ineffable, incomprehensible God of all the universe, would create you in order to pour out his love to you and create you in order to inhabit you, indwell in you, to have that intimate of a relationship with you um, should cause us to do nothing but bow down and worship in adoration. The fact that God is that interested in us, that God loves us that much to live in us by his Holy Spirit is one of the most beautiful promises we have in all of Scripture. That's one of the reasons he was sent to dwell in us. And then finally, I need to move on here. 
the Holy Spirit was sent because the disciples and us were to continue on doing the very things that Christ was doing. Jesus didn't do his works and then leave, and then that's it. He wanted what he started to continue and even increase, and he said, I'm going to give you the Spirit. You see the works that I'm doing, disciples? You're going to do these works, and even greater works than these. Now, have any of you read that before and were a little bit puzzled? How in the world can we do like greater works than Jesus? I mean, have you raised someone from the dead lately or fed a whole lot of people with a little bit of, you know what I mean? Um, I think one, probably the best way to explain that is that the disciples and Christians even today don't do greater kinds of work than Jesus, but the scope and the sphere of influence was greater with the disciples. Jesus ministered in Palestine. Jesus knew that when he gave his spirit to the disciples, they were going to do the same works that Jesus was doing, but to a much larger audience. Jesus ministered largely to Jews. The disciples were going to minister to the Gentiles and to the rest of the world, to the ends of the earth. And today, and it's been this way for a long time, Christianity is not some Jewish sect. It's global. When Jesus gave the Spirit, the Holy Spirit came and enabled the disciples to do the very same things, but to a wider audience. And again, wherever we are, wherever we are throughout the week, God wants to do his work through you. The very works that Jesus himself was doing, the things that he came to start, he wants to continue through you. Whether it's in a factory, a field, a ranch, an office, wherever it is, God's spirit wants to dwell in you and work through you to be the salt and the light that this world desperately, desperately needs. This leads us to the last question then. What difference does the Holy Spirit make in my life? Well, in light of everything we've said, it makes all the difference in the world. It makes a total difference. Without the Holy Spirit in my life, I'm not a Christian. Don't make the mistake of thinking that the only kind of people who have the Holy Spirit are so-called super saints, or like the really, really spiritual people. It's not true. I don't care how new of a Christian you are, or how maybe immature of a Christian you might be, when you put your faith in Christ, He has given you His Spirit. If you are a Christian today, however new, however alloyed you might think you are, you have His Spirit within you. I'm able to profess Jesus as Lord when I have His Spirit. We're told that in 1 John. When I have the Holy Spirit, I have a new spiritual sensitivity. I see things in Scripture that I wasn't able to pick up before. I have a hunger for God's Word. I'm able to sit through a sermon and maybe not always fall asleep, right? Because I want to know more about God. Because there's something within me that resonates now with what I'm hearing, that connects. Maybe not with everything, but there's more of a sensitivity, an aptitude for the things of God that I didn't have before. But when I have the Holy Spirit, that changes. I have a new character. Are we familiar with the fruit of the Spirit? Hopefully, some of the kids are learning Galatians 5, 22 through 23 in Sunday school. It's by the Spirit, through His work of sanctification in me, that the very character of God, those characteristics of love, joy, peace, faithfulness, gentleness, all of those are inscribed on my character. They're, they're ingrained into me so that I can actually start living like Jesus because the power of the Spirit within me creates that kind of fruit. It means that there's a big difference between the way I live with the Spirit and in the Spirit and by the Spirit 
than the way I used to live without the Holy Spirit. And there's also a way in which I'm more gifted. Now, some of you might not think you have a spiritual gift, but if you're a Christian, you do. A spiritual gift is different than a natural talent, although sometimes they can coalesce. But a spiritual gift is something that you can give to the church, even if you don't necessarily think you're great at it. When other people recognize, I think you're good at that, then the Holy, it means the Holy Spirit has given you something to contribute to edify the body of Christ. So apparently you need four or five more workers for VBS. Okay? I guarantee because of the power of the Holy Spirit, four or five of you who may not even like children that much have that gift to do that. Okay? You do. I'm serious. I, I'm not shooting my own, own horn at all, but I'm not a big kid person. I have two myself, but I'm not a huge kid person. This last several years, one hour a week, I go to the local elementary school and I mentor a kid for an hour a week. I figured... God spoke to me and said, if you can keep your own two kids alive, you can step into this situation that you're not comfortable with and help a little kid out for a week. And I'm not even that good at it, but it makes that kid's day just because I showed up. Um, you know what I'm saying? It doesn't have to be something big and glamorous. Some, some of the gifts of the Holy Spirit are those things that are done behind the scenes, that no one's going to know that you did. You're not, you're not going to get credit for it, but it doesn't matter who gets credit for it because the kingdom's being glorified. God's being lifted up. The church is being put forth to the world and being helped and built and edified. Be obedient to the Holy Spirit as he gives you gifts. We're told in Romans that we have assurance that we're children of God by the Holy Spirit he gives us. I don't have to worry about whether or not I'm you know, going to heaven or not. I'm, I'm always checking my spiritual pulse. Am I okay? I know we go through times of temptation and, and, and seasons of discouragement, but when I have the Holy Spirit, He gives me that quiet assurance. You still belong to me. I'm still here. Even if you've, even if you've done something really stupid, you, you confess that I'm here. We have that beautiful gift. And finally, we are temples of the Holy Spirit. God dwells in us as a temple a temple is a holy place that God inhabits. And you're a temple because of the Holy Spirit. That should make a difference in the way you treat your body, in the way that you live day to day. Finally, in closing then, since the Holy Spirit is Lord, I can worship and glorify the Holy Spirit with the Father and the Son. I recognize that He is a divine person of the Trinity who lives in me. And since He lives in me, I have life in the Holy Spirit. I have a power, a sensitivity, a purpose, a love, a life that I didn't have before. And I can go with confidence knowing that I belong to Him. I belong to God. His Spirit helps me know that and gives me powers and equippings to do things for God that I could never do on my own. Let's pray. God, may Your Spirit truly fill us. May we be surrendered to your Holy Spirit, whatever you want us to do. Thank you that you have loved us enough to share your own spirit, the spirit of God, the spirit of Christ, to live in us. Thank you for this Pentecost Sunday. Thank you that there is a thing that is Pentecost. We don't just celebrate your abundance of gifts, although we have that materially but we celebrate the fact that you have shared your very self with us in the most intimate of ways, and we give you praise.
Help us to live differently this week, knowing that it's your spirit who lives in us. And we live by your power and not our own. In Christ's name, amen. There was supposed to be a closing song with my wife, Christy, and Phoebe, but since plans changed, um, I'm dismissing you. So in the words of Paul, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you today and always. Amen. Mm -mm. You're dismissed. <laughs>